right, episode 104 with Ben Fogel is about to start. And heads up, this is the second episode where my microphone decided not to work and it only picked up on my laptop. But for this episode, why I try to do is re-record all my questions so I apologize if the sound quality is not the best or something seems out of place but I literally will repeat every question the best way possible to make it sound natural and not awkward and yeah we're just going to see how this thing plays out because I'm about to do that right now before I even did this intro so 104 is about to start with Ben. Hopefully you enjoyed. Hopefully the sound doesn't suck. And here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and today joining me is Ben Fogel. Say hello. Hi, how's it going? Good, good, good. Uh, so I always like to start the show with asking my guests what they got planned for the weekend to break the ice. You know, I live in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and right now we are in the middle of winter, but it doesn't feel that way right now because there is a lot of sunshine out and there's not a lot of snow on the ground, but I do like to ski and I've got a five and three-year-old boys that will take up skiing this weekend and uh, we'll be uh, about 20 minutes from our house. It's really close, ski resorts. So we're looking forward to doing that. Awesome. Is that a thing to do in Salt Lake City is a ski and snowboard? Yeah, you know, we have all the seasons. In the wintertime, that's really the the thing to do if you're into it. And I really got into it um, after I competed for about seven years in the sport of bobsled. I had to get something else to get my adrenaline rush going. So I slapped on a pair of skis and kind of self-taught my myself how to get down the hill with a, a few uh uh you know near-death experiences <laughs> but uh you know that was uh that's part of the part of the journey it was fun awesome so for the audience can you please tell them who you are what you do and how did you get into this industry yeah so um so yeah my name is ben fogel i own and operate uh Epic Fitness. It's a small um, studio gym in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, gosh, how I got in the industry was um, I studied exercise science in college. And after school, I, uh, I took, like I said, I took about a seven-year hiatus competing in the sport of bobsled with the U.S. national team and competing World World Cup, World Championship level, and it was really an awesome experience to travel the world. But after that, I had to uh, kind of buckle down and, and start uh, in the real world. And by that time, I was about 27, and this was 2006, 2007, and and I started just uh, at a bit, you know, a big box gym. <clears throat> personal training. And, uh, I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to kind of, uh, give back what I've learned in those 10 years prior in competing and, and also in, in learning and growing in college, uh, in, in that subject matter. So I want to give back in the, in that way to, uh, to the industry. So I started to do personal training and then, uh, from there, uh, how Epic Fitness evolved was, I, it was a need to, to, um, solve a problem. And my problem was I was, I was growing a little bit too much, too, too fast, too big for, uh, being under the roof of a, of a, 
a large big box gym. So that's how we broke out and kind of uh, started our own, our own four walls of a, of a gym. Sweet. So what got you into bobsledding in the first place? Yeah. So back, way back in college, I, uh, I competed in track and field and, uh, division one college and, and, uh, I, uh, I did pretty well, but I, I was always ha- had uh, injuries here and there. I was a thrower, so I always had injuries. And um, uh, decathlon coach at my college had, had said, hey, you'd make a great bobsledder because he had some experience of knowing athletes that had done it in the past. And one thing led to another. I did a tryout, and the tryout led to um, – you know, uh, making the national team my first year. And I kind of spent almost seven years doing that and just a wonderful experience traveling the world. I never would have gone to Europe or done any of the things I did if I hadn't done that. And, and, uh, it all started just because of my athletic background and, and wanting to kind of see what was next or what it was on the horizon for, for what I could do physically and, um, in, in sport, you know? Awesome. What position were you in the bobsled? Cause there's usually four people, right? Yeah. So you have a, yeah, you've, you've got a driver and you've got either a two man or four man bobsleds and in a two man sled, you're, you're called the brake man. Cause your job is to jump in the sled behind the driver and you're both pushing off the start. And then your job is to hang on, hold on and know the track well enough to not scoot around too much back there. And then, uh, when you get to the finish of the, uh, of the track, you've got to pull those brakes. And so that's called the brake man position. So I did that in two man, but I mainly did four man and, uh, my position in the four-man sled was uh, riding second, or we call it two. So you're riding second right behind the driver. There's two different positions you can ride when you ride second. It's uh, either the Cadillac position, which is basically your legs wrapped around the driver. Uh, and he's up in the front seat. Uh, and that's a comfortable position. The second position is called um, cannonball. In that position, you're basically your knees are pulled in tight to your chest, so it looks like you're about to jump into the pool like a cannonball style. And that's an uncomfortable position. It's even more uncomfortable when you crash because when you crash, if you can think of this, you're not, uh, your legs aren't out, you know, around the cowling of the sled and, and kind of protected, you end up being the kickstand of the bobsled. And, and so when you're sitting in the two position, I was the kickstand many times when we crashed and, and you kind of get sucked out of the sled. So you're, you're the one taking all the brunt of the, you know, 14 pound, 1400 pounds of, uh, of, uh, weight on your head and your shoulders and your back and your neck. So, um, if I, if I stutter a little bit because of those couple concussions I received when I was bobsledding, <laughs> So I'm kind of curious, what was the training on the bobsled team, both in-season and off-season? Was there anything that you could remember and share with us? So, you know, we we did, I lived in Canada for about three years in Calgary because our, our strength coach at the time was Canadian. So I, I knew a lot of the Canadian bobsled team and they're great guys. And that's kind of the idea because the season's so grueling. You have about a, uh, about a five, four to five month season. Um, and it's really grueling on the body. So, uh, you're really preparing by, by doing things like you would in a track and field type of sport, working on strength and power and those kind of lifts and those kind of sprints. And you're a sprint, you're basically a 30 meter sprinter. Um, you're training like you're a 30 meter sprinter. So, uh, the more, the more mass you have, the faster you are, the, 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 the more of an asset you'll be to the team because it's the less weight you have to put in the sled. Um, the lighter the sled is at the start, the, the faster the start you can get. And so it was an awesome experience just because I had that kind of background with track and field. So it, it, it molded perfectly with the type of training you had to do with, with strength and power, but you're right on with that. That's kind of how it is. And trying to maintain that through the season was the hard part. So 
with this this Canadian bobsledder you're talking about, that's really what you're looking for is, you know, how much mass and strength can you gain? But, can, you know, you're obviously not going to be able to maintain it through a, through a grueling season when you're traveling, you know, several different countries through a season and not having, you know, perfect nutrition all the time. And the food that's in Europe isn't the kind of food that you're used to maybe in the U.S. or Canada, but um, it's, a, it's definitely a, a challenge I, from what I remember, yeah. So I'm kind of curious, what was your nutrition like when you were competing at the highest level at bobsled? Like what was the typical day looking like for you and what do you remember from that experience? Yeah, great question. Uh, gosh, back back in the heyday when I was, I, you know, I was living at the, the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York, uh, it was uh, you know, you've got the, you've got the cafeteria right there. So the amazing part about that was you can go and eat whenever you want, but we had, you know, dietitian nutritionists helping us out. Um, with the type of training we were doing, we were probably training between four to six hours a day with pushing the bobsled, sprinting, lifting, all that stuff. You're eating, you know, I was probably eating close to five, four to 5,000 calories a day. And, uh, gosh, it spread out through five or six meals. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, just, just, that was what I remember just eating a lot more than what I eat now <laughs> to, to maintain a current body weight and a body, you know, body mass and fat percentage that was competitive back in the day. So when you finally retired from competing at a high level with the bobsled team, how did your nutrition and training change after being so exposed to performance and strength and how did you kind of gear your training back to reality of everyday life yeah i didn't specifically um once i retired but uh um i think it would be really hard to uh that transition um and i think the transition's hard i stayed really active and I stayed in kind of the, the fitness field and I, st I kept training. I always was training for something after that, um, whether it was semi-competitively or, or just staying active. So I didn't have that, that issue, but, uh, I would say the struggle's real. If you were a competitive swimmer, like a Michael Phelps and you were eating 10,000 plus calories a day to be able to kind of modify your, uh, your intake based on your, uh, current caloric needs, you know, so I wanted to shift gears and ask you about opening your facility that did you seek out the Cosgroves for help first or did you open up the gym and then go find their business mentorship and go from there? Yeah, great question. So I actually, um, I, when I was, um, under the roof of a, a big box gym and, and just a personal trainer at the time, I was seeking out mentors all over the feet, the field. And I would go to, you know, the perform betters a couple times a year. And, and, uh, I would see their, uh, I would see them speak. I'd see Thomas Plummer speak and everybody that's in the, the fitness business realm speak. And then I'd start to seek them out. And, uh, it was about probably seven or eight months before I made the transition into opening the business that I, uh, that I joined a, um, 
joined a mentorship group that uh, Rachel and Alan Cosgrove were part of and 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 headed and 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 that was a, a, a great transition to be able to kind of get not only their expertise but the the group um, the entire uh, mentorship group that includes you know 80 to 100 different fitness professionals that all have the same goal of either opening a facility or or running and maintaining a fit, fitness facility that um, with the common goal of you know really changing the way fitness is done all over the world and and uh, being in that group now for gosh it's been almost four years, I think, since 2013. Uh, it's just an amazing place to kind of uh, bounce ideas off of and and uh, and work work closely with people that have been there and done that, you know. And, and so my biggest thing is you, know, you find somebody that, that's already been there and already done that, and it's going to help you a ton to be able to, to do, uh, you know, if you're looking to open a fitness facility or become a better personal trainer, you got to find people that have kind of been down that path already, you know. Yeah, so how big is your facility, like, square footage wise yeah we're just under 3,000 square feet we're about 2,800 square feet um usable facility space more like 2,400 square feet because bathrooms and showers and all that but uh so it's a little on the smaller side but uh we get a lot done in our facility and we're really um we really cater to semi-private coaching so we coach between one and four clients at a time everybody has their own unique program we also do group classes uh but we're really we're really, really known for the customized uh, programming and, and that individualized kind of access the client gets. That's awesome. Yeah, like I can't remember who said this, but I believe it's a better idea to start off small with your first facility, grow into it, and then look for the bigger square footage space. Whereas a lot of coaches make the mistake where they want to build out a facility of 10,000 square feet and then they end up with no clients coming in and with huge overhead costs and they're kind of stuck in the middle in that sense. Yeah, you know, uh, Thomas Plummer has been, uh, you know, I, I, I work with Thomas Plummer, and he he's, uh, says, you know, you got to start with at least, you know, minimum of 3,000 square feet. You know, I'm a little bit below, but there's always exceptions here and there. But uh, you want a minimum of 3,000 feet. That seems to be kind of a, a good space to get up to about, you know, 200 members and, ma- and make a good profit in that in that kind of a space. Um, but I... You know, I when I was looking at spaces, you you look at those nice eight or ten thousand square foot spaces. But yeah, the um, start small. You can always you can always build build up and and move into something bigger if you need to. I'd rather be in that position of having to blow out of this space and and be too small and 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 just uh, uh, grow into a bigger space than going the other way around. You know. Yeah, I'm also uh, curious, like how big is your staff? Like how many trainers do you have currently, and including receptionists? Yeah, yeah. So right now we've got oh gosh we've got uh four other coaches four uh three that are full-time one that's part-time so four coaches and then one one um actually two kind of administrative uh people so one manager of the gym and and then one that's my wife is who does a lot of the admin work uh as well she's part part (laughs) part-time but uh stays involved in the day-to-day um so we have a team of seven, uh, seven, including myself. Um, and so it's really good because, you know, when I first started, it was, it was me doing all the training, all the coaching, all the, all the hours, and they were long hours. And then, you know, if you want to build, build a business and, and have a life and not just a job, you gotta, you gotta build systems. And that's what we, we did. Uh, uh it takes time, but once we built the systems and got the coaches in, we have got a wonderful staff of, 
Um, they happen to be all females, which is actually caters pretty good with our clients since our clientele is about 65 to probably 70% females. Um, and we, 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 uh, we recognize that and, and it works out pretty well. That's awesome. And I think there's a huge shift in the industry right now where a lot more females are getting into personal training. And for the longest time, there is this gap where there's always all these male trainers and you have this missing link of, you know, if you had a female trainer on your staff, now they can connect a little bit better with your female clients and kind of go from there. Yeah. I think there's definitely a shift in the in the industry. And I think it's really good for the industry. I think it's also great because when we look at our client avatar, like I said, is a 35 to 55 year old female that, uh, is ready to put themselves first again and, and, uh, you know, make a change in their lives. And they may have got their kids off to college or got them out into school where they actually have time now to do stuff and, and to, to kind of work on themselves. A lot of our all of our coaches can relate to that, uh, especially the ones that have kids and especially the ones that are in that, in that boat. Um, they can rate a whole, a whole lot better than I can, you know, as a, as a male, um, you know, as a male and, and somebody that's maybe not be dealing with that, uh, as much as, as much as our coaches have dealt with it. So it's, it's good to be able to connect that way too. Oh yeah, definitely. Now, the other question I wanted to ask you is like, what's your hiring process? Like what is the characteristics you're looking for for a brand new coach stepping into your gym and what do you want to see out of them when they're coaching others? Yeah, great question. So what we did is we, we hire, uh, completely based off of our, our, our mission and our core and our core values. And so the way we set up the, the initial interviews is we have to make sure they're a good fit with our culture. So we, we asked them, um, core value-based questions, and they're all delivered in a way to the prospective coach where, um, you know, you can tell right away if they, um, for example, uh, you know, one of our core values is to constantly learn and always improve. So we're always going to the conferences. We're always learning about the, the next best technique or the next best certification and, and getting certified and recertified and, um, you know, and if we ask a question like what, you know, talk to me about what book you're currently reading and, and, or what seminar you plan on attending this, this year in the next three months. And if their answer is, well, this is my favorite stuff I love to look at on Instagram. And, uh, this, this is a really cool magazine. I love, uh, you know, uh, us weekly or whatever, you know, then it's probably not a good fit. You know what I mean? I get all my fitness information from, uh, some, some weird source that I've never heard of. Uh, so it's really good, uh, to, to, to hire off of core values. And we found that, um, we, we never gone really wrong in, in hiring from our core values. So we use that. We also do like a three part interview. So the first step is making sure they can send us a resume with, uh, with, you know, a cover letter and see if they're serious from there. We ask them a core value based question in the, in the email before we even meet them. And then we asked them to send us a, a, a quick video of, of kind of, uh, uh, the question being, you know, what, why do you feel like you're a really good fit for, for our team? Uh, and then have them do a little research on us so they can see what, what we're about. And then from there we call them in and then we'll do the core value based questions. And, and that by that step, you know, part four of the interviews, when we finally meet them, that goes through a couple of phases and, and then uh, we get them on the floor, get them, introduce them to our clients and, and have them kind of see how they interact with our people. Um, and then from there, it's, it's, uh, 
it's time to hire him. Uh, one one cool thing I heard uh, Todd Durkin talk about what he does at the end of his interviews, which I started to do, and I thought was pretty interesting. And you just uh, you, you you help by uh, you basically take the um, your person you're interviewing, you walk them back out to their car and just see see kind of what their car looks like. If it's a complete uh, rat hole and a mess and a disaster, uh, you can probably base it that maybe their life is a little bit like that and maybe a little bit disorganized. But it's not the only thing we use, you know. But it's one of the one of the things you can kind of notice how, how they live, you know, a little bit. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you was, what advice do you have for any brand new coach or anyone interested in getting into this industry? Because I find now I'm getting a lot of questions from my podcast listeners of newer coaches asking like, hey, what should I be reading? What should I be you know, listening to? What should I be watching? And yeah, kind of go from there. Yes, yes. So now, so your question is, what would I, what advice would I give to an up and coming fitness coach, but not necessarily somebody who's looking to open a business or a gym? It's more just what resources and what what to, what to kind of study up on. Yeah, definitely. Okay, um, I think uh, the most important part is to have gosh, to have community around you where um, you can bounce ideas off of people that are smarter than you that have been there and done that. So my, my example is, you know, as you know, uh, Raphael, I, I, uh, I live really close to Dan John and I work, I work with him closely and I, I go to his gym and uh, he, he coaches me and mentors me. And, and that's kind of my, my bounce the ideas daily off the walls to him. And so I reached out and, and, you know, when you reach out to these fitness professionals that may live in your area or you may be close to, or maybe just be a, an email away from, don't be afraid because they want to give back to you. And, and, and Dan John, as everybody knows, he's, he's so willing to give back and, and give back to, um, fitness uh, professionals and coaches and, and anybody really. And so I got lucky in that, in that aspect as I found somebody that, um, that I could kind of, uh, mold a, a similar, um, you know, similar values to, because I, I have very similar values to what he values and with fitness and, and how it's done. Uh, uh, but I say, find somebody in, in your industry that's close to you in this, in the same industry that you can, that you can mold and follow and, and, uh, and actually ask for mentorship. And so that's the first mistake I made is I didn't ask soon enough. I didn't, when I started out, I had Rachel and Cosgrove, Rachel and Alan Cosgrove, uh, back in 2009, they were on my mind way back then when I, you know, two years into starting my journey as uh, a fit pro. And I, I didn't, I didn't ask for any advice till 2013, four, four years later, uh, would things would have been a lot different if I had asked for some advice earlier. Yeah, for sure. Uh, same with Dan John. I probably waited about a year before I kind of, uh, had the, uh, you know, um, had, had maybe probably the courage to go to just ask him for help or ask him for, for his advice. And he's like, why don't we talk earlier, you know? And, and he's just so welcoming, welcoming and open, open about that stuff. Um, but I'd say start, uh, start early with, with, uh, getting advice from your peers, getting advice from people who've done it. So if you're in a gym facility, find the, find the coach or trainer that's been there the longest and, and sit down and, and take them to lunch or to coffee or whatever and ask them what their, uh, what their success story is, how they've been successful in what they're doing. But I would always try to, uh, um, mirror and, and, uh, um, 
you know, try to replicate what, what the best are doing in the industry. Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think mentorships are one of the most underutilized forms of education out there. Because again, like all these newer coaches are reaching out to me to figure out what they should be doing. And honestly, I tell everyone that, you know, go online and find a mentor in the industry or even find a coach in your area that does really, really well and just get underneath them and learn everything humanly possible to figure out what to do down the line so you don't have to, you know, get through all the crap in the industry and then figure out, oh, shit, like I shouldn't have been doing that for all these years. Yeah, there's so much there's so much crap out there. You got to sift through, you know. And but also, I didn't mention this about hiring coaches, but this could be a good thing for the question you just asked me about with uh, up and comers. Uh, if you've just getting out of college or graduating, we're actually uh, we've we've had a, three internships in the last uh, you know three years at our gym, and we're an internship site for the local colleges, BYU, University of Utah. Uh, they call us to ask us, hey, we've we've got these, uh, you know, that's part of their graduating process. They have to do a six-week internship. So we we came up with a curriculum uh, to to help these kids graduate. But at the same time, it ended up for us being a six-week um, interview. Basically, we got these kids for six weeks, and we've actually hired we hired two of our four amazing coaches. We hired through the internship process. So actually, sorry, three three of the four. Um, so that was a big, big, uh, aha moment for me is, is getting, um, so if you're on the other side of it, not the business owner, uh, find, find gyms that are connected, uh, with your internship, uh, study, uh, in exercise science and kinesiology or whatever you're studying and, and, and seek them out. And if they're not on there and you you found a gym you love, or you would potentially want to work at when you graduate, um, contact them and ask if they would do an internship. Um, cause there's, you know, it takes, it's a lot of work for the business owner and for the, for the, for the gym, but it's well worth it for, for the student as well. Yeah. So this next question is for the coaches that have been in the industry for a while and now are looking to open up their own facility. Can you share some of your experiences and mistakes and like anything that you would want a coach who's thinking about opening a facility to know before they actually dive right in? Great question. So I would say go start with the bare bones basic as far as equipment. Everybody wants the sexy equipment in their gym. You don't need sexy equipment. You just need um, the basics. <laughs> the basics being, gosh, foam rollers, uh, medicine balls, dumbbells, kettlebells, and maybe some barbells. Uh, besides that, like, gosh, if you have a couple aerosol bikes, great. But like people... A lot of these uh, coaches that come and ask me about how much it, how much it takes to open a gym or how much it costs to open a gym equipment wise and everything else, it's my initial investment wasn't more than fifteen or twenty thousand dollars, and I hear uh, a lot of these gyms opening up for a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars, and they're gyms that are my size. So start small, start start without a lot of debt if you can help it, um, and just know that. Uh, you got a long road, road ahead to obviously to, to fill the gym and to, to get the number of clients you need to um, basically break even and get into the black. But um, my suggestion would be to start small. Uh, the minimum would be 3,000 square feet or right around that range works really well. Uh, make sure that your offerings are, are sound and, and uh, that what you offer is basically um, 
what you offer is what the client needs and what what you really believe in. And uh, um, your first hire needs to be an administrator, not a coach. I'd say somebody, an admin. Um, and that was uh, the first mistake that I didn't make was I hired an admin and, and everybody's like, oh, you got to hire a coach. You got to take yourself off the floor. Actually, I, I needed to hire an admin to do all the, uh, the paperwork and all the stuff that I didn't want to spend the time on while I was starting to build a business and getting more members in the door if they had to see me still. So, uh, and then you can transition to, to hiring your first coach, but I'd hire the admin first. I'd start small, start with 10 to $20,000 investment, um, buy used if you can. And, and, uh, it'll save you a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, the only other advice I have this last year, I read a book, <clears throat> if I can share a book on here, is that okay? Oh yeah, 100%. Sure. Okay. Book recommendation. Uh, for business owners, it's a book called Profit First. It's by Mike Michalowicz. Uh, he's got a really funny spelling out to his last name, but if you just look up Profit First, you'll find it. Anyways, the big aha moment for me there was um, being able to separate your uh, your income accounts or the money coming in from your outgoing accounts or all the, the money being debited out and, and separate it and see you know, how much profit you're actually making and, and, and seeing where your money's going and, and actually taking your profit out uh, first and deliberately um, doing that uh, instead of uh, it being all of your, you know, all of your income minus expenses, you end up with some semblance of a profit that usually never works out. Uh, now the new the new equation we use here is is we we pull the profit out first. We we're, we're expecting the profit to be pulled out first, and then we subtract all all those expenses you know, all those expenses and, and, uh, we, we have an idea of where our income is now. So, uh, I'd say always start with pay, paying yourself first and, and, and paying your business first. And, and this is a great, it was a great book recommendation and a great book recommendation for me. And, and it's kind of changed this year already. And just being a month, barely even a month in, uh, it's kind of changed the game for us for, for how we run and operate the business. Yeah, like you said a lot of great things, but the one thing that really stood out to me was hiring an admin first before another coach. And I think a lot of people out in the industry don't think about that because, you know, you hire another coach that sure it's a duplicate of you, but you still got to do that administrative work that you might not really enjoy because you are more geared towards the training and training other people, whereas paperwork is not the best. Yeah, and, and you know the big thing when you when you do hire an admin or you hire a coach or whatever, when you hire admin first, make sure that they're you know they may not be certified. Obviously, they're they're probably not going to be certified in any fitness realm. But uh, as Michael Boyle says, and I like using this as well, as I I ask every person that comes in for the interview is that you know every every one of our uh, um, team has to be certified. And they ask, you know, because they're not a coach or anything, like, what do I need to be certified in? It's actually a CNP. Have you heard of the CNP certification? They'd say no. What does that stand for? It's certified nice person. So as long as you're a certified nice person, you can smile when people walk in. You know everybody's name. And, uh, gosh, I can train the rest of everything else you need to know. As long as, you know, you, you know right away when they walk in, if they're if they're outgoing, nice, and and uh, we we use that as a, as a big um a big reason of, of why we hire the people we hire because they're super nice and they are uh, they're the best the best of the best in that in that realm. Awesome. So I, I want to also shift gears into something a little bit more personal. And I believe a couple of weeks or a month ago, you posted on social how you've been battling cancer. 
and right now it kind of seems like it's going in the right direction. So I was kind of curious if you would be happy to share your experience battling cancer and what kind of advice you would have to anybody out there that might be in the same position as you and any kind of information would be amazing to have from you on this experience. Sure. Yeah. Um, no, it's totally public. I, <clears throat> back in, uh, it was November of 2015. I was 35. So it's over two years ago. Now I, I, uh, was having a lot of, um, just uh, general fatigues, th- things that just didn't seem normal, uh, from a health perspective. So I went in and got a, a physical and, and, uh, one, you know, long story short, um, I went to a GI doctor cause I had some elevated liver enzymes and, and they did a bunch of tests. And one of the final tests they did was a liver biopsy, which I don't recommend ever getting, but if you have to <laughs> anyways, um, they, they found uh, a, a really rare type of leukemia that was infiltrating the liver. And, and it was, it was so rare that, um, you know, I, the first, the first oncologist I said I went to didn't know how to treat, didn't know what to do to treat me. And then I actually got, uh, got, got in with a great uh, team that's uh, nearby. Uh, it's called the Hudson Cancer Institute. And, and they were able to figure out what medication I need to be on. And, and I took, Gosh, I took my second round of kind of an oral chemotherapy drug that that we kind of hit a home run with because it it got rid of a lot of my my symptoms and it also got rid of the um, the poor you know the blood work that was coming back that was bad with the liver enzymes and everything else and long story short uh, the 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 biggest thing that I learned during that time when I was first diagnosed is that. Uh, you know, cancer hits everybody. It, it's, it hits, it hit, it can hit anybody. I mean, and, uh, when it hit me, you always are thinking, you know, this would never happen. How does this happen to somebody like I'm only 35 years old? Um, what the heck's going on? But I realized that the more I more thought I put into like how bad and horrible or it could be, uh, the more negative I got. So I decided and just made a choice that, um, I wasn't going to, I wasn't, wasn't going to be negative about it. I wasn't, I was going to stay positive and continue to kind of do what I do, you know, run, run a facility, keep hiring people to, to, and this is where I kind of made more of a transition to, into, uh, being out of the gym more and, and hiring more coaches as I could to, to, to do the work that I was, was currently doing. And, and I stepped out for quite a while and, and, uh, and, and, and battled the leukemia, but also having people on my side was important. So like I said, uh, mentoring with, with Alan Cosgrove, he, he battled, uh, cancer for a couple times and he had, uh, some great advice for me. And one of them was, you know, always, always look on the other side and, and no, no one understand that, you know, you'll come out, you'll come out better on the other side. If you, if you don't dwell on to the past and what's, what's happening, you know, always look at the future and how, how much better it can get. So my, my updates is I'm three months uh, into uh, remission and I'm going in this next week for kind of a, a three month checkup. So we'll see how things are going. But I, I, uh, I see this as kind of a, just a little bit of a speed bump in my life. And, and it was a couple of years of a struggle, a little bit of a struggle, but um, gosh, I'm a lot luckier than a lot of people. So um, I feel healthy. I feel strong. And, and the biggest thing is the mindset part. Like if you're ever diagnosed with cancer or some sort of debilitating disease, just know that like your mind is such a powerful thing. And if you, if you fill it with negative emotions and negative, uh, self-talk and negativity, you're going to end up with negative 
negative results. And it's just like anything in life. Uh, I just filled my mind and, and, and I journaled a lot about positive things, about what I was grateful for in my life during that time. And I still do it to this day. Every day I write down what I'm grateful for. And I've got two beautiful kids, uh, two boys that are five and three. And my wife is very supportive of me. And it's been, a it's been an ama- amazing kind of transition getting out of that, um, uh, you know, since, since being off of the medication and, and, and kind of, uh, the support I got at the gym was, was really, really incredible. So does that help kind of give, given that? Yeah. And not, not only the mind, I mean, it's the body too. Like, so the physical part of me, uh, I wasn't able to do things like I was when I first got diagnosed, but as I, as I got used to the medication, I started to physically train harder. Like I could in the past, my doctor, um, kept telling me like, gosh, I wish my other patients would listen to like, just to, to be able to just work on basic nutritional principles, uh, eating your vegetables, drinking water and, um, you know, having good lean, good lean protein, in your diet, like having protein, veggies in the water, something as simple as that, um, for a cancer patient is really, really important, but the people are not doing. And then the other thing was, um, physically like, I kept myself physically strong the entire time, and I didn't stop training. Like, I didn't stop working out. Uh, gosh, since I was diagnosed, we've had two people in our gym, two members, get diagnosed with cancer, one with breast cancer, one with lymphoma. And and my advice to them was always don't, don't stop your stuff in the gym. Like, you keep going uh, because the doctors, they tell you the same thing, you know, Matt. Or like what kind of chemotherapy it is, uh, it can be really harsh stuff. You might need to take three or four days off, but you got to get back uh, and go back into your routine. That's what they recommend is always get back into your routine, whatever it is, whatever it was. And if you're not in an exercise routine, get into one um, because exercise really like the, my doctor said like she was surprised with how quickly kind of I adjusted to everything and, and how I didn't have some of the symptoms that a lot of people have on this, on this chemotherapy that I was on. So, um, and a lot of it, she said was because of my, my, my health, my condition and, and kind of being, being fit, being fitter, you know? So those are things I'd recommend is, is, is keep, keep the nutrition up and, and keep the, the fitness up and don't, don't be afraid to work out. All right. So for the very last question, tell the audience where they can find you online if you have anything coming out or anything you want to plug away for the audience to know about, here's your chance. Here we go. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so you can find us at epicfitnessutah.com. Uh, on Facebook, it's Epic Fitness Utah. Uh, and Instagram, or Instagram, same thing, Epic Fitness Utah. The, uh, gosh, it's the best way to reach out to me if there's anybody that's an up-and-coming trainer, coach, obviously business owner. I'm sure they're all listening right now. Uh, you can email me. You can reach out to me in email. It's just ben at epicfitnessutah.com. I'd love to talk with people that are in, in the industry needing advice or, or wanting to get connected. If you're in Utah, please come by our gym. <laughs> Say hi. Um, and uh, up-and-coming projects, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work on writing more and, and doing more of that. Uh, we currently have a lot of stuff going on in the gym that we're we're, we're kind of uh, nose to the grindstone right now with the new year New Year's uh, resolutions, kind of New Year's New Year challenges and stuff like that. So you can find that all on the websites. But nothing is as far as online. Everything's kind of in house right now. But um, that's kind of what's going on. All right. So I just wanted to thank you for all your time. This interview was just plain awesome and amazing. 
All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 104 with Ben Fogle. Hopefully the audio wasn't too bad and made sense because I did have to adjust some of my questions as obviously it didn't come off as naturally as it should because I'm re-recording everything. But I believe we still got something out of it and Ben was amazing. He has such an inspirational story. And again, please, 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 please share this podcast. If you have any feedback, feel free to reach out. Add me on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, whatever you got to do. And tell me anything you like about the podcast. And until next week, you guys.